podcast. Uh, welcome to This Is Her Story. I'm Joanne Bastine. Uh, all of my friends and frenemies, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Um, anyway, I'm excited about, this is episode 120, and uh, I want you to meet my friend Hope Ray. Uh, so Hope is a therapist uh, and a theoretician, which I'm not really sure what that means, but uh, you'll get the idea when we interview, when we interview, uh, and when we talk in this interview, um, she is the pioneer of complex partner trauma. And, uh, and she also has her own podcast. Uh, and so you can, and you can follow her on all the social medias. I'm going to link all of that down below in the show notes. So please check it out. You'll want to follow her, especially on TikTok, uh, and Instagram, um, where she has, uh, some, some videos, um, but then also obviously check out her website. <clears throat> so good news. She is actually local. She's here in the Detroit metro area. And it was great to meet her and to um, just hear about her, her practice and um, how she's helping couples. One of the things that she really specializes in is this idea of sex addiction, sexual addictions. Um, so it might be pornography, um, multiple affairs. Uh, and she has a, a term that she, a, a phrase that she's coined called betrayal violence. And so we talk about what that means. And, um, and then we get into stay shaming and then also the psychology of persuasion. So you're definitely going to want to stick it out to the end. Now, I know I've been doing this series on deconstruction and Technically, this is not really a deconstruction episode. However, um, and we mostly talk about uh, uh, counseling and betrayal violence in the context of marriage. <clears throat> However, if you're deconstructing, and even if you're not deconstructing, as you listen to this interview, you will see how applicable this is to the church. Um, I ask her a lot of questions about how pastors clergy, chaplains um, can help people who are walking through um, betrayal in their marriage. Uh, and so I think there's going to be a lot of resources in this episode. Um, she's also working on doing uh, workshops and training and stuff um, for organizations. <clears throat> and so you're definitely going to want to get on her website and sign up for newsletters or whatever she has available so that as new things come out, um, you'll have access to those resources because I think no matter uh, what your ministry looks like, whatever form that you're pastoring in, um, there's going to be a lot of valuable tools that you're going to find here. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to you, you uh, hearing this. And then when we get towards the end, we start talking a little bit about stay shaming. And I think for me personally, uh, that all of it was excellent. This is all excellent uh, information that she has. Uh, very interesting. I, I took a ton of notes. Um, but the stay shaming, I think for me, was particularly interesting um, because I always think of this idea of stay shaming as shaming people into staying. But then we also look at the other side of shaming people for staying, which was enlightening. And so we, we talk about how do you find that middle of the road, right? How do you find where 
like shame should not be a part of the church. And so we walk through some of that. And so I, I hope you'll stick it out to the very end. Anyway, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, check her out and enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Well, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited. Joanne, thank you for your invitation. You know, talking with pastors, clergy, uh, ministers in the church, this is such an important area in my heart and in my work because, um, man, I know how many of my clients first go to their their church centers and their faith communities to look for help. And there's so much that we can offer from these places. Uh, but sometimes there's a few things to look out for. So I'm excited to dive in with you today about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, uh, and so one of the things that I've tried to do in, in this podcast, this episode, but then other episodes as well, is really that we're trying to undo um, some of the toxic theology that has cropped up right over the years and give, give pastors um, and, and clergy another way to understand um, abuse and to recognize it more quickly um, so that they can uh, just be advocates for um, anyone in the church. You know, obviously women and children tend to be the number one victims, but we also know that, you know, men can be victimized as well. Um, but uh, I, I want them to have the resources that they need to be better pastors because we need we need better pastors um, out there in the church. And then I also think that it, it will help any of the lay people who are listening who who are feeling like their pastors are the toxic ones and they're trying to figure out how do I how do I how do I deal with, deal with this? Who can I go to that will actually help me and those kind of things? So, yeah, yeah. Now you've been a, you've been a, a licensed um, counselor for how long? Have you, how long have you been doing this in your practice? Yes, uh, since 2012, and my area of expertise began with studying compulsive or addictive sexual behaviors, and um, it, within that focus, I really. I really began to focus on what the partner's experience is when somebody that they are married to or partnered with has secret sexual behavior, uh, whether it's, you know, a full-blown addictive kind of thing, or there's just infidelity, cheating affairs, hidden pornography use. These things create a lot of pain, a lot of damage to the relational dynamic, uh, a lot of trauma for the partner. And so I began to look into that, uh, you know, early on. So for the past 10 years, that's been my area of, of peaked interest. And so recently I, I finally released the, the work that I've, you know, kind of culminated from all that time observing and uh, working with, with clients for a decade. And, and so it's essentially a theory called complex partner trauma. Uh, it's mm. a framework that helps us to understand what partners would experience after uh, experiencing what I call betrayal violence. Yeah. And you started uh, actual betrayal violence Institute. Um, 
I, I like that terminology. I feel like it gives us a better idea of like betrayal is one of those words that it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? Right. Um, it's, It's kind of an abstract concept. So when you talk about like, what is the difference between what we think of in just everyday betrayal, right? Like my friend told a secret of, that I share with them in confidence and I feel betrayed versus what you're talking about when you talk about this idea of betrayal violence. Absolutely. Well, first of all, violence is a strong word. Uh, and the type of violence that we're talking about here is not the kind that includes black eyes and bruises. And so we can talk more about that. Nonetheless, society really needs a more thorough and in-depth understanding of violence because the way it's truly defined really means that whether or not somebody wanted to cause harm, if they intentionally used power and control over a person, whether in physical or emotional or psychological ways, that if detriment is caused to that person by by being subjected to that power and control, that's a violent outcome. That's violence. And so when I talk about betrayal violence, I'm talking about something that happens uh, within an intimate partnership where one person is secretly and repeatedly violating fidelity and the other person is being deliberately kept from knowing this information, sometimes for years or decades. And what that does is when that partner's reality is being controlled and and you know managed by their partner it creates a power differential and that unknowing partner is now in a place of endangerment where they can't accurately assess their own safety and well-being within the relationship because they don't know the full picture of what's going on. They may have detected some evidence or there may be some instances where you know things came to light or there was a a confession of sorts. But at the end of the day, the partner doesn't have the full picture of their endangerment and therefore they continue bonding, connecting, attachment, investing with their partner under unsafe circumstances because they don't know the circumstances are unsafe. This is where trauma really begins to culminate. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's very difficult and painful to be cheated on, but when that occurs alongside all of this deception and reality control, even exploitation of the partner's trust, then we have violence. And even though it may be non-physical, although some people are subjected to sexually transmitted infections in the course of this type of violence, but even though it may be non-physical, it's the idea that power and control is being used to manage the reality of the partner. And therefore that partner gets put into a one down position and the other partner knows more about that partner's reality than he or she does. So when we talk about betrayal violence, yeah, we're using strong terminology because this is a serious thing and it needs to be articulated clearly so that we can help uh, when people are caught in these positions, whether they're the ones, you know, causing the violence or whether they're the one on the on the victim and receiving this type of mistreatment yeah and i saw you were talking a little bit about this at one of your clips on your instagram i think it was and you were talking about using this terminology with men and um about how i think i think you were talking about how they like receive it better or Mm -hmm. maybe it just puts it in a different content. Will you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in the Midwest. The 
the dominant group that I work with as far as couples who face betrayal violence goes would be the, you know, cisgender heterosexual couple where the man is the one with the secret sexual behavior and the woman is the one who uh, is victimized by the betrayal violence. And so oftentimes when I'm explaining betrayal violence conduct to men, you know, if they're serious about trying to restore their relationship, they find this information very clarifying, uh, even relieving. Nobody wants to associate themselves with abusive behavior, right? But when they've been hearing from their wife or their partner, uh, all this stuff about what, what they've put them through and, and how they've hurt them so much, sometimes uh, the language is not as clear, especially when it's emotionally charged and trauma-based. So a lot of men find it relieving to see the structure of betrayal violence, where I really break down what's going on and what are the maladaptive character traits that are undergirding this abusive behavior. Furthermore, I think betrayal violence really clarifies that for people who have been secretly cheating, it's not enough to restore the relationship just to simply become a faithful partner. Listen, that's what your partner has been doing all along. And it's kind of ground zero, like a baseline requirement. Being faithful, uh, stopping cheating doesn't automatically restore what's been damaged by the abusive aspects of the behavior. And again, the abuse is the deception, the, the persuasion and mind control and the exploitation of the partner's trust or finances or uh, domestic labor. So at the end of the day, um, oftentimes men will find this to be helpful because it, it identifies what the problem is. It puts into words what their wives have been trying to communicate to them. And it, it makes them feel hopeful that maybe something could be done about it in an organized way where they know what they need to do now to move forward and trying to you know, become trustworthy and, and help their, their partners heal. Yeah, I feel like that it gives, it like gives them a starting place, right? Right. Yeah, like, okay, I, here's very specific things I need to address and we can take this step-by-step step and it doesn't feel as overwhelming, right? Like, um, I think when you're trying to repair any relationship, there's, okay, I've said I'm sorry. Now, how do I rebuild the trust? Because trust yeah. is a valuable commodity. And once it's gone. Yes. Yes. And so many people, you know, talking particularly about men who've, who've cheated and, and had infidelity secretly for a long time, when they get into a solid place of, of healthy sexuality, and they're no longer doing those secret repeated fidelity violations, they often feel really stuck and helpless. Like, you know, I've, I've become trustworthy in that regard, but it's not translating over to my partner. And the reason for that is because the power differential hasn't yet been dissolved. And that's the work that I do through the Betrayal Violence Institute. And I'm, I'm helping other uh, professionals across a variety of disciplines learn how to identify the power differential that's there and recognize that it's not enough just to cultivate a healthy sexuality and faithfulness the power differential also needs to be dissolved. And that's the work of the person who has done the betraying. And so that's what I teach them how to do as we look at their conduct in betrayal violence. Oh, that's a great, um, that's, a, that's a great application for the church. A lot of the people who would be listening, a lot of my listeners will come out of denominations where we talk about egalitarian versus complementarianism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this idea of complementarianism, 
is yeah, men and women have different roles and they complement one one another, but it that always keeps the men at having a higher, having more power and that it keeps that power differential. Whereas we talk about with egalitarianism, you know, we want to balance out that power differential that men and women are equal because they've been created, they've both been created in the image and likeness of God, right? So because of that, they have equal status as human beings. Um, and, and that we have, that we always have to be balancing and watching that power. If there's a power imbalance, mm -hmm. we're going to, as soon as there's a power imbalance, we're going to start to see abuse and whether it's power abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, you know, um, physical abuse. Um, you used a great phrase of, you talked about gaslighting, but then you said you use a different word to explain gaslighting. And I like that. So when you talk about the difference, I do want to get into state shaming, but I want to, I'm kind of saving that for a bit, but um, like the difference between gaslighting and persuasion, like how do you use that to define what's actually happening in these relationships, you know, specifically marriage? Yeah. Yeah. So gaslighting, in my opinion, is a great term. I use that term. <clears throat> it has, however, been kind of usurped by pop psychology, you know, social media influencers use the term gaslighting a lot. And so I think it's lost some of its potency. Um, furthermore, the study of persuasion is a whole field within the discipline of psychology. Persuasion, you know, as it relates to what cult leaders do, persuasion as it relates to um, dominator culture or um, just power and control dynamics, misogyny, things like that. So when we talk about persuasion, there's a more rich field of, of data and research. And these terms, in my opinion, are stronger. So uh, you know, the abusive behavior and communication or the ABC that accompanies secret fidelity violations is really broken down into three things, according to my theory. One is deception. Deception can be overt, outright lies or acts of omission, um, you know, making sure the partner asks the perfect question before you would give the, the response to that. So, you know, intending to be honest, but only if asked exactly write what, what it is that needs to be uh, disclosed. Um, so there's, there's a whole continuum of deception. Then the second piece of abusive behavior and communication is persuasion. Uh, and that's my term uh, that I use essentially to illuminate gaslighting. And the way that I do that is by incorporating some concepts from other researchers, psychologists, for instance, Lisa Aronson Fontes came up with the term perspecticide, which just in, in, a, in that term, you hear when somebody's own perspective has essentially, you know, been unalived, right? There's this sense of, I can't believe my internal and external experience because I'm up against the manipulation of another person. Uh, furthermore, there's, um, you know, concepts about thought reform, uh, where we are taking a look at what what do we do when we're trying to get somebody to really um, buy into a reality that is inaccurate? And this is stuff, like I said, that cult leaders do or um, people who are leading unethical business practices or even politicians where they're, you know, highlighting certain things and enough truth to really cause uh, 
a false picture to be believed. And so the second piece of abusive behavior and communication is this persuasion. And it really includes all forms of gaslighting, manipulation of the reality, um, you know, using using attributes of the partner against them. For instance, their spirituality. You know, if you're really uh, it, it's as deep into your faith as you say, why are you having so much trouble forgiving me? Or, you know, I'm I, I'm a pastor. Or I'm a I'm a person who dedicates my whole life to ministry, and you're you're trying to trying to tell me that I'm just cheating on you, and and that I'm lying to you about this. Like, where do you come come off feeling that way about me? Everybody else knows, you know, what kind of man I am, and you're the one who just has has your doubts. What's going on with you? Or using other attributes against them, like their own psychological concerns or trauma histories, like, you know, your dad cheated on your mom. And so you just think all men are cheaters or, um, you know, you have issues with trust and that's really affecting our relationship. So that would be examples of perspecticide of, of persuasion to get someone to not believe their reality. And then the third piece of abusive behavior and communication is exploitation. And I won't go too deep into it, but essentially exploiting aspects of the relationship or the partner that work to the benefit of the person trying to keep secrets. Yeah. Um, how can, how, how, I feel like there are like, so I'll just use me, for example, there have been a number of couples that I've run into over the years where like, I see it and I want to help them, yeah. but they're really stuck in that. Uh, you didn't, you didn't say mind control, but <laughs> what was the phrase? Thought you said? reform. Thought yeah. reform. Okay. So they're, they're, they're like, no, no, that when it, it was my fault or, you know, if I had been, if I had been more uh, sexually available, they wouldn't have cheated. Like, mm-hmm. like, how can we, like, how could I help someone to just even start that process? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess yeah. I'm, yeah. Like they've, they've come to me and they've said, I, I feel like I'm losing my mind and and I know that they need help, but yeah. You know what, Joanne, that is the question of the hour. And I'll give you my perspective on it. Um, Because that partner is working against so much subterfuge, there's so much stratagem being used against them to keep them from knowing the full context of their reality. Because of that, people like us from the outside are going to really struggle to help them identify the mistreatment. Uh, And it's not for any weakness or lack of insight on their part. It's because their relational reality is revolving around the access of this abusive behavior and communication. And they're in that one down position that they can maybe feel, but there isn't enough information given to them to be able to accurately assess the picture of how bad things really are. Now, sometimes from the outside, we can sense it, or even the partner, him or herself can sense it and will bring these concerns to their pastor, their therapist. But at the end of the day, there's not enough in their reality that makes sense that this is full-blown abusive, you know, stuff. 
And again, it's not just the cheating. We're not talking about cheating necessarily as abuse. We're talking about the withholding of the reality of that person's well-being and safety. So here's my perspective. Most partners have trouble really coming to terms with the endangerment they've faced until they get to a point of reality collapse. And re reality collapse, the way I define it, is that this is the point where a partner has sufficient information to understand the depth and breadth of how bad things are, the extent to which their partner has gone to lie to them, deceive them, betray them. And it doesn't mean they know everything about the betrayals. It just means they they kind of reach this epiphany point where whoa, this is worse than I thought. Whoa, there's probably more than I don't know. And it's at that point that partners really have an open window for helpers like us to be able to talk with them about uh, the, how their reality has just collapsed. And they feel like maybe they look back over their life and think a lot of it's been a lie. And they start to process their memories retroactively in light of this new epiphany. And that's when you know we get to help them hold up hold up the, the, the magnifying glass and, and say, you know, is this a, a picture of equity? Is this memory you're processing a sign or demonstration of you being um, safe? And so oftentimes that's when people will start to come in and get help. But even before that, when they come to get help, it can be challenging um, to help them kind of identify some of this stuff because they're up against so much deception and persuasion and exploitation. Wow. <clears throat> there's so much, uh, there's so much application for obviously couples, but then also religious trauma. I'm like, I like see all the threads. Um, <clears throat> it's like, this is good stuff. I feel like, man, if there's even one person listening who uh, either has experienced this chronic trauma, e either in a marriage or in their religious experience, mm -hmm. um, maybe it will help i guess the real the breakdown of the reality right yeah. the collapse like i really like that terminology reality collapse like that's really what has to happen in mm -hmm. order for them to get help and I, like anyway that makes makes a lot of sense like there's when we talk about uh addicts you know and that they have to hit bottom i think this is for victims i think it's this is that idea of reality collapse for them you know, whether it might be the, the, um, comparison, you know, yeah. victim versus addict. Uh, can we talk about this idea of stay shaming? I like that terminology and I feel like it might give some people clarity. What do you mean by stay shaming? And then like, how can we help people through that? Yes. Stay shaming is essentially uh, the idea that if if there's, let's say, a woman who's been cheated on and deceived um, and she's really working to restore her marriage, a lot of times people on the outside, family members, uh, you know, church, church family, um, friends, even therapists, clergy are going to want to really understand what it is. It's hard for us sometimes to wrap our heads around. Why would she want to stay? Um, does she not recognize she doesn't deserve to be treated that way? Or general society sometimes will kind of decide, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater. Or if somebody did that in the first place, they're not able to change. Uh, and so, you know, why is she so, you know, maybe deluded or, you know, deceived that there's going to be something better for her in this relationship down the pike? 
And that is really damaging. You know, you were just talking about, you know, church trauma, right? But there is therapy and clergy induced trauma that, you know, can happen for people who are seeking help in this place of, of experiencing complex partner trauma. And oftentimes they're getting advice that makes things more confusing for them. So sometimes the advice is just bad advice, like, well, maybe you should, you know, submit or figure out your husband's love language or consider if you're offering your body to your your partner in a way that, you know, blah, 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 right? And thankfully, I think that's more seldom, but it still exists. And it's very sad and damaging information. But other type of, you know, encouragements that uh, people will give to partners in this situation are things like, you know, do you really think that your partner is going to change? Or, you know, if I, if that happened to me, I would be out of there. And I'm just concerned that, you know, you, you aren't seeing how bad this is. And oftentimes what we're doing from the outside is unintentional stay, stay shaming. In fact, our concern is for the person uh, and their well-being, their safety, their healing, but what we're doing is we're adding on kind of our own prescriptives of and asking them to do labor for us, to answer our questions, to help us figure out what's going on when it's not really our business, right? Um, if they have shared with us and they're asking for support from us, then I suppose they've invited us into their business, but they haven't necessarily, uh, even when they ask for our perspective, it, it's not up to us to prescribe for them whether they should stay or they should go. I'm a firm believer that uh, if even my client doesn't know if 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 they should stay or they should go, that there's no way I could know that for them uh, because there's a lot of barriers that partners face when they're trying to you know decide whether or not this is going to be fixable. So stay shaming is just all about taking a look at our unconscious biases and how we might project them onto these people who are struggling. It's one of the quickest ways to get them to stop being open with us. And so if you've found that walking alongside someone uh, has changed and they, they're no longer sharing much information, it's most likely because there has been um, either an inadequate understanding of their struggle and their pain or some prescriptives offered to them that just added to the rubble heap and made it really unsafe, essentially, to keep processing with you. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's, I wanna stay, I wanna stay here for a minute because, um, what, and I, and I think this is important, especially for pastors who are listening, because we have seen so often that we've seen the, we see a lot the flip side, the toxic side of you should forgive and you should give them another chance and you should stay. And, and we don't give them permission to make their own decision. Right. Yeah. So, so we've tried to counterbalance by saying, you don't have to stay like we've tried to counterbalance the other side. So we're, we're so like the other people are stay shaming and you should stay right and now I and now we flip to the other side but we're stay shaming by saying you should get out yeah. um and so where, where's like I guess the question is where's the healthy middle for us like how can we be um a healthy uh, advocate rather than a toxic advocate for people. Well, my goal with the Betrayal Violence Institute is to help people across all disciplines, medical professionals, legal professionals, clergy, mental health clinicians, coaches. It's to, to help them understand the barriers that people face when they've been 
victimized in this way. And one of those barriers is the idea that um, when somebody finally gets caught with their secret behavior or, or, you know, sudden change is beginning to occur, that oftentimes this generates hopefulness that perhaps the relationship can finally heal. Mm -hmm. See, because most partners who've been victimized in this way have had their share of struggles. Maybe they found out some information along the way, but not all of it, of course. Maybe they have um, had uneasy feelings and they've had to make meaning out of thin air because they didn't know what was really going on. So they decide this is just how my partner is, or um, maybe our marriage is just kind of past the honeymoon phase. And, you know, or maybe I need to do more of this or less of this. And so when they're facing barriers like that, and then all of a sudden their partner's remorseful, demonstrating a desire for change, this is sometimes the catalyst for a lot of hope and the time they want to embark on really, you know, trying to restore the relationship. So that's one thing I think people need to understand. Instead of stay shaming, we we are not within the walls of that home. And as difficult as it may be for them or as treacherous as some of the behaviors may have been, there's also reasons that they may want to stay. Now, if those reasons don't involve hope or change on behalf of their partner, sometimes they involve difficulty, you know, figuring out how to be alone, difficulty figuring out how to establish life on their own. Maybe they're in, you know, retirement and they're living out their retirement dream or prepping to dive into that, you know, legacy that they've planned for all their life with their partner. Why would they want to invoke a whole new crisis if this crisis is going on. Sometimes staying put uh, is a place where they can sort through things without additional layers of change and, and trauma. And furthermore, you know, their partner is the one who knows what they're going through. And whether or not they're empathic enough or there for them enough, there is sometimes a need to be able to have someone who really understands uh, at least what has occurred. And because they can feel very lonely, partners can be you know, quite isolated if they don't know others who've been through this. And so there's there's a bit of a bond, you know, around that as well. So those are just a few of many, many examples. There's cultural issues and social mores and things that also impact why people choose to try and work their relationships out or choose to leave immediately without maybe covering the bases that that would be healthy to cover before just up and leaving. Yeah. So to, at, at your institute, then should you offer like workshops and stuff or? Right now I'm training organizations uh, to okay. become betrayal, violence informed. And so, you know, I, you could think of it like an organic stamp on a banana. You know, there's plenty of clinics out there and, and churches that have counseling centers and uh, you know, places where, you know, people are interested to know how to handle this in a way that comprises the whole issue, not just the sexual piece. Right. And so that's, that's the work I'm focusing on right now through BVI. Hmm. Oh, that's good stuff. Um, I, have, I have a ton of questions for you. Um, uh, so I guess, um, just kind of, let's just kind of leave it at, like, usually I say, um, if there's one thing you really want to leave, um, pastors with, like, how can you be, um, a better pastor for people in your congregation who experience this? So kind of like, yeah, like you're like, like, if I can only tell you one or two things, like, this is what I want you to know. Yeah. Oh, man, that is such a rich question. 
I'll probably wake up at 2 a.m. and think, right. oh, this too, and this too. Thank you for that one, Joanne. Uh, here's, here's what I'm really thinking the world needs to know about partners who experience this kind of betrayal. What they're experiencing is ongoing, repeated, secret sexual behaviors, betrayals, and then a bunch of deception, gaslighting, et cetera, to keep it hidden from them. And so when their reality has been put into a straitjacket by their most beloved, closest person, the one that they committed their life to build a legacy of children with, or a business or a ministry with, and they learn the gravity of the deception, the power and control that had been used against them. It doesn't just drain all the love that they have for their partner out. In fact, it's quite debilitating to discover that you um, may have been giving to your partner while they were stealing from you. And so the attachment injury here is the idea that maybe even if they knew some things were not okay and that there was some betrayals, most partners continue attachment investing, meaning giving of themselves freely and benevolently, even all the more when they, when they learn those things are occurring because they want to create a strong, healthy bond and a sense of um, you know, powerful connection in their relationship. And so when they learn that they gave all of these efforts out of good intentions and, and goodwill and love and benevolence, and meanwhile, their partner was essentially a wolf in sheep's cloth, it ends up feeling so uh, much like having experienced terrorism from the inside, because it, it's one of the most unsafe positions to be in when you continue being vulnerable and contributing to your partner and the relationship and their career and the family in a way that is sacrificial and, and good-hearted while you were um, being deeply betrayed and manipulated in the process. So if there's one thing to understand, it's this in, this attachment investing piece is huge. When you look at the you know criteria that I've created for complex partner trauma, it's essentially three things. One is that the partner experienced endangerment where their partner was secretly repeatedly violating fidelity and then using all that abusive behavior and communication to keep it hidden. That's the position from which then a person is attachment investing and they give of their, their selves for years or decades even until reality collapse occurs and they learn that, you know, this is worse than I ever thought. I knew it wasn't good. I knew it was bad even, but man, now I recognize how serious and grave the situation is. And the third piece then of complex partner trauma is all the detriment that that accumulates in multiple dimensions of, of wellness, like your psychological wellness, your physical body, your emotional and spiritual existential crises, you know, um, it is so impactful and traumatic. And that's what I want people to understand. That's why we can't just quick get these people to safety or quick get them to realize this or that or quick make a decision about whether they should stay or go or what kind of boundaries they should have or if they should or shouldn't be having sex with their partner. Um, we have to understand that they're in a place of complete and utter disorientation. And there's often a lot of self-doubt and guilt that 
people experience for having given so much of themselves while they were in unsafe contexts. Wow, this is good. This really helps to put um, just a better framework around it and um, help. I think it, well, this is gonna help pastors to see people see this from the other person's perspective right mm. um especially if you haven't experienced any kind of abuse in your own personal life um you know whether your childhood or, or whatever um it's such a foreign concept right and i think this is going to help them to be able to offer more um empathy because they can start to understand it from their perspective yeah, thank you for saying that. And that's my hope too. You know, if our job is to support, it's to believe that change is possible for both members of the couple. And also that power and control when it's present and there's a power differential, you know, that really removes any responsibility on part of the victim to contribute to the marriage. They really just need to find this, the safety for themselves to find their own healing. And the person who has done the betraying needs to get well. They need to contribute to the relationship if it still exists by initiating trust rebuilding protocols. And they need to, um, you know, have a, a tremendous ability to be present for their partner. And that all is part of the rehabilitation stuff that I teach through the Institute. But, um, but change is possible for both folks. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I'm definitely going to put all of your links in the show notes so <laughs> they can uh, access any of that information that they, whether it's for themselves or for somebody else. Um, and uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this. Thank you. Your questions were awesome. And I so enjoy talking with you. It's a blessing to be opening up uh, with this information in the spiritual community. I can't wait for more opportunities of this nature. And I just want to thank you for, for your invite. Good. Good. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? <laughs>